thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I am Robin Loof, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers specializing in commercial crime. I started my career at the criminal bar before joining Debevoise and Plimpton's White Collar and Regulatory Defense Group in 2013. I joined Fountain Court Chambers in June last year, and here I primarily act for companies and individuals facing criminal or regulatory investigation, particularly in relation to corruption, sanctions violations, and money laundering. On this episode, we discuss the independence of prosecutions and prosecutors in England and Wales. Our panel includes two former prosecutors now in private practice. You will hear from Nick Vamos, a partner at Peters & Peters. Before joining PMP, Nick was head of special crime at the Crown Prosecution Service, overseeing its most complex casework, including corporate manslaughter, election fraud and police corruption. During his 17 years at the CPS, Nick also held three of the most senior international prosecution posts. Head of Extradition, Head of the UK Central Authority for Mutual Legal Assistance, and Liaison Prosecutor in Washington, D.C. Our second former prosecutor panellist is Miranda Ching, a white-collar crime lawyer at Coburn King, where she advises individuals and corporates in cross-border cases. Before joining Coburn last year, Miranda was a case controller and prosecutor at the Serious Fraud Office, where she was responsible for the investigation and prosecution of multiple fraud and corruption cases. And completing our panel is Richard Lissac, QC. Richard is one of the country's most experienced practitioners in the fields of corporate crime, financial services regulation, commercial fraud, and health and safety. Richard has been involved in many of the leading cases in these fields in the past three decades. By way of example, he led the successful defense of Barclays Bank against the SFO's allegations of fraud in relation to its Qatar fundraising, and was instructed in the J.P. Morgan London Way litigation. He now joins us fresh from a 14-week trial at Southwark Crown Court, resulting in the acquittal of his client, a former CEO accused of misleading the market in a prosecution brought by the Financial Conduct Authority. The discussion in this episode arises out of a series of recent events which raise questions as to how independent those responsible for investigating alleged criminality and bringing criminal charges before our courts really are from political or other external considerations. We have seen, for example... The SFO continuing to fight what appears to be a constant battle to justify its own existence. The unceremonious ousting of the Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police by the Mayor of London. A perhaps curious lack of investigation by law enforcement in relation to various scandals involving alleged serious misconduct by politicians. And a sustained trend of individuals and entities making use of the residual right to bring a private prosecution. We also touch upon the formal status of prosecutors their independence in deciding whether to open a criminal investigation or prosecution, and whether reform is needed. I am very grateful to all the panellists for joining me in what I found to be an honest, interesting and thought-provoking discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. We'll begin by looking at the prosecutors themselves and how they consider their independence and how they are perceived. And the two main prosecuting bodies, the Crown Prosecution Service and the SFO, have similar institutional positions. Their directors are appointed by the Attorney General, a government minister, and there are no express guarantees as to tenure or process for termination or reappointment. The director's salaries are determined by government, and operationally, they carry out their duties under the Attorney General's superintendence. So, Nick, from the perspective of the Crown Prosecution Service, do members of the CPS consider themselves to be part of a discrete and above all independent core? And 
as a slight outside perspective, do you think they are perceived as such by wider society? They definitely perceive themselves as independent, and that's highly valued by prosecutors. You know, they they feel constitutionally obliged to not give a hoot about what a politician or a newspaper thinks about anything. And in my experience, they discharge their prosecutorial duties always with that independence firmly in mind. And obviously, the CPS makes decisions in high-profile cases, sometimes controversial decisions, some that attract a lot of media attention or have political implications. And in my experience, they will always make the decision first and worry about the fallout or the media handling second. And that's, of course, exactly the way it should be. And in my whole time at the CPS, 16, 17 years, and I dealt with some very big cases myself, I never once felt or heard of any pressure being placed on any prosecutor, directly or indirectly, from any politician or part of the establishment that was not entitled to have a view on what the CPS was doing. As for public perception, I mean, I think possibly fed by popular press and television programs, which like conspiracy theories and play into sort of public fears about invisible hands moving things behind the scenes. Possibly the public do think that prosecutors can be lent on or will make decisions for improper reasons. And that's regrettable. And I think if they saw the sausages being made, uh, as the saying goes, they would see that it's just not true. And Miranda, the same questions for you then from the perspective of the Serious Fraud Office. Do members of that body feel that they are part of an independent corps and do you think they have that reputation? I think so, absolutely. I think the SFO is a little bit different, of course, to the CPS by way of its composition. It's a much smaller organisation. The SFO has fewer cases, fewer prosecutors, but... Even having said that, during the time that I was there as a case controller, all of the decisions that we made in terms of whether to start a case, whether to drop a case, and the core decision-making in terms of who to charge, indictments, etc., was carried out in accordance with, with our normal functions and duties. And at, certainly at no point was there any suggestion that how we ought to operate would be influenced by any sort of external factors. The reputational issue is interesting, and I I would invite anyone on this panel to, to discuss whether or not there is a perception of there being a lack of independence, perhaps with the SFO because there is a lot of scrutiny on the sort of core cases that arise in the press people tend to try to draw connections. And in the absence of any explanation from the SFO, because it's difficult for them to comment publicly on cases, these sorts of things tend to go through the round, certainly within the, the defence community. So I can see how there has been debate about reputation, but certainly from my personal experience and having had many conversations with with former colleagues, I can certainly say that it wasn't the case in, in terms of the, the matters that I dealt with. Richard, you have a comment on this on this reputational point? I do. I don't doubt for a moment the what has been said by both uh, Nick and Miranda about the individual perception of independence and the striving for it. But I don't think it's right to overlook the corner house judicial review decision in the Al-Yamama missile case and the 
heavy political interference in the SFO's decision as to whether or not to bring those events to a public prosecution. I was involved in it tangentially for, for a party, and I remember all too well the unwelcome attempt to influence the decision-making that took place there, which was quite unfair to the SFO, completely unfair to the director of the SFO, imposed at the time, and I think was a particularly low moment in interference or an attempted interference politically in what should be exclusively a legal process. So I don't doubt, as I stress, that the 99.9% of the decision-making is entirely free of external improper influence. But I think the perception is something a little different. El Yamama case was obviously highly significant, not only did it lead to um, extensive judicial proceedings in this country, but it was also picked up by committees looking at prosecutorial independence within the Council of Europe. And it did lead to some reform here so that the relationship of superintendents between the Attorney General and a particular relevance, the director of the SFO, and also, but also the, the, the director of public prosecutions is now much more formalized. So I suppose the question is, Following those reforms, do you think that that type of scandal would not happen anymore? I think it would be much more difficult. And I mean, also the comment I was going to make is that that was a egregious example of political interference, primarily, of course, by the Saudis, as opposed to the UK politicians, although they played their part, as it was revealed in the judicial review. And I'm reassured that it's one example in the last... 10 or 15 years, and there really haven't been any others not that have come out. And, and I suspect if there had been, they would have come out. So, of course, the system isn't perfect. And I wish that case hadn't happened. And ultimately, of course, it was the threat by the Saudis that led to the SFO feeling obliged to drop the case because of national security concerns. And so the fact that we have one egregious example, I think, actually shows that on the 99.9% of the times which is referred to, that doesn't happen. I should probably say in fairness to those involved have obviously defended themselves and said that there wasn't actually improper political interference and that the it was merely in course of the proper consultations on national security, which they would say that they're still entitled to uh, uh, to provide to prosecuting authorities in those circumstances. But Miranda, I appreciate that this was well before your time at the SFO. But It was, but looking at how the SFO has evolved since then. We, and edit this out later if need be, the GPT case is now being charged, right? And that's within the public domain. That required Attorney General consent to prosecute and that did go ahead. So since then, certainly during my time at the SFO, we were very aware of cases with a political dimension and we had very strict protocols in place in terms of the composition of the teams, the review process, and additional assurances that needed to be carried out to make sure that the mistakes of the past didn't occur again. So at least I would certainly give the SFO credit for making up for what had happened in, in that matter. Nick, I wanted to come back to you on one thing that you said in, in, in answer to my first question, that prosecutors within the CPS feel that they are constitutionally prevented from taking political considerations. It's interesting that you use that word, but if you ask prosecutors, I ask you as a prosecutor, where would you say that that independence comes from? Well, it's written into the code. 
first and foremost, the Code for Crown Prosecutors makes it very clear the decisions are taken independently in accordance with the evidence and the public interest and nothing more. Uh, occasionally resources can become a public interest factor, I suppose, but that's not really a political influence. So the foundation document tells you that that is your job to prosecute independently. And in my experience, certainly in uh, the casework divisions, which dealt with the most sort of complex and sensitive cases, I mean, some people took that to the extreme of you know not listening to maybe some helpful advice from their superiors who weren't trying to change their minds, but just sort of steer the case in a particular direction. And they would be uh, resistant to anybody interfering with their individual judgment on the case. Now, that's sometimes a more of a management issue than a question of independence. But as I said, it, it starts and finishes with the code and it's all there in black and white. Richard, can I just say that I agree with both Nick and Miranda that post Al-Yamama, there has not been, as far as I'm aware, and as was said, if it had happened, we'd be aware of it in this day and age, anything of the like that has occurred again. And I think it would be a very unwise attorney or politician or prime minister that would try to cross the line for a second time, it having been so brightly drawn the first. Um, but I think it's also important to recognise, and this is part of a, dis of a suite of decisions that are factors that play into a decision on public interest that Nick and Miranda are better placed to speak to than me, have to recognise that there are sometimes political issues in a case that are not necessarily the product of any external threat to the independence of the prosecutor but have to be taken into account. For example, if you're prosecuting a major bank for conduct which, if right, must implicate a friendly state in the misconduct, that is a feature which I think has to be resolved by the prosecutor as part of their decision-making process as to whether bringing a prosecution is in the public interest. And that is not then to mean that the decision-making is in any sense lacking independence or tainted by any interference. On the contrary, it's not. But it's just a recognition of the reality of the world in which we live. And this will play out over the next two to three to four years, I should think, as we see what happens to the consequences that flow from the recent sanctioning of the Russian individuals in this country, where the suppressed premise of the sanctioning is you have been involved in criminal misconduct, you have been involved in money laundering, you have spent the proceeds of crime within our jurisdiction impermissibly. And it'll be interesting to see how the political pressures with a big P and a small P play in any decision making as to whether there's going to be any prosecutions. I mean, the sort of cases that, that Richard just mentioned, obviously high, or should we say large commercial uh, criminality often falls to the, to the SFO to handle. And Miranda, in that context, the SFO, I think, without going into the merits of any particular criticism that's made against it, I think just as a matter of fact, has been a somewhat embattled institution. It's very existence questioned. We have a situation where the director is under pressure, uh, under investigation, ordered by the, by the Attorney General, and at the same time may or may not be asking for reappointment. Just looking at it purely from that perspective, is it fair, do you think, to question whether an institution under that sort of outside pressure or outside scrutiny can act independently and whether it can maintain a perception that it acts independently? Of course, with, with what you, you've said, there is a temptation to draw 
an inference towards that conclusion. But the reality is far less exciting, I'm afraid to report. And it's certainly not the case that Lisa is sitting by herself in a room making all of the decisions on on various matters. But as we know, uh, all of the cases go through the chief investigator, general counsel, heads of division. And certainly I've been in meetings where there hasn't always been a consensus on key decisions. And it was a a hallmark of my time there to be able to see that process play out and to see my colleagues have a robust debate as to how we ought to proceed in certain very delicate situations. Now, talking about the, the environment and the context in which the SFO currently finds itself, well, firstly, its very existence has been questioned for I don't know how long. And Ever since it was founded. <laughs> it's still there. So I, I expect that that's just simply going to carry on. In terms of the, the issues surrounding the director at the moment, I'm not going to comment about that. But I, I would feel that maybe it's the issues may be a by, byproduct of a potential lack of understanding between the wider defence community and how the SFO operates. And I think there is an op- uh, an opportunity for people on both sides to have better engagement with each other, rather than instead coming to conclusions that there's some sort of political force at play. Richard, changing register slightly, we shouldn't forget about private prosecutions. It was a an institution that was expressly retained when the, the Crown Prosecution Service was founded. Yeah. And do you think its its um, retention says something about how the prosecutor is perceived within English criminal procedure, more sort of on a cultural perspective? It's more a party like any other rather than perhaps on the continent where it's seen as effectively a separate, almost branch of a judiciary style institution. Yes, I, I think the, the the right to bring a private prosecution is, a, is um, an anachronistic hangover from a common law regime that respected the rights of the individual citizen to institute proceedings prior to the introduction of a standardised Crown Prosecution Service and survived for reasons of misty-eyed affection more than anything else. And I think that what may not have been anticipated by those who sought successfully to argue it should be retained is the fact it could be so uh, abused there is a place in a in a society as free as ours for an institution that looks aside from a prosecution to have its view second guessed by a judge and a jury in a criminal court if an individual or organization thinks it's appropriate to bring the proceedings and they can be properly constituted but i think this has got uh, out of hand I have recent experience of a very high-profile private prosecution, which I was defending against a major international figure and set in train a case which, but for the intervention of the CPS at the or DPP, for the invitation of the senior judge at Southwark Crown Court, where, which is the Crown Court to which it was sent to stop the case, may have run its course. Obviously, there are there is the break in the system of, well, you can argue it's an abuse or you can try and get the case dismissed and all that. But that's cold comfort 
against the structural issue that is created by an individual who by definition has an interest in the prosecution and is not independent being able to bring a prosecution in a regime that is founded upon a presumption of independence as as both uh, Nick and Miranda have been speaking to and uh, I think it's it's long overdue for a further review and recent decisions of the Court of Appeal have upheld the continuing right to bring a prosecution. And I'm not saying that should necessarily be scrapped, but I think that the safeguard should be brought to the front of the process, not the back. And by that, I mean this, that that as you and everybody listening to this will know, there is a right for the Director of Public Prosecutions to take over a private prosecution that is referred to him or her and then having taken it over either to continue the case under the flag of independence and all the virtues that Nick was speaking to earlier on, or to drop it. Now, that is consequential upon the bringing of the case rather than a prerequisite to the case being brought. I think it should be the other way around. I think that there should be a some form of screening without it becoming too cumbersome, too expensive, too overburdening to the individual who is bringing a perfectly properly constituted case or to the organization that's having to vet it, something must be done to screen these cases. And it has an advantage for the prosecutor of this. It means that a prosecutor will know that uh, an independent body has looked at it. And even if the CPS, for example, say, well, sorry, perfectly sound case in law, but we don't have the resources to bring it, for example, which I think happens... uh, the suppressed premise of a lot of reasoning and bringing a private prosecution is that, that would be the result. So why bother asking? It would be a comfort to the prosecutor to know, and it would see off the defence complaint in large part if it had already been through some sort of screening process. But I think that the statistic I heard, which is anecdotal, it may not even be right, but I give it anyway because the actual figure doesn't matter as much as well thinking behind it that at a point last year, 25% of all prosecutions at Southern Crown Court were private prosecutions is extraordinary, if it's true. Nick, you want to come in on that? Well, not necessarily on the last point, though that, that is a surprising statistic. More on the sort of constitutional justification. I, I think I take a slightly different view from Richard. I mean, I, I, I see the merit in having the right to bring a private prosecution as a constitutional safeguard against state inaction whether through lack of resources or incompetence or or some other reason. The problem in practice, of course, is the other justification is that access to justice, that this constitutional safeguard exists, but if you want to use it to have your access to justice that otherwise the CPS is denying you, then the costs are prohibitive. So it doesn't really work. And it ends up in the type of cases that Rich is describing, where it's people with unlimited means potentially abusing the criminal justice system for private purposes because they can afford to, whereas somebody with a legitimate case, which for whatever reason the police and the CPS have failed to take any action on, can't. So I conduct private prosecutions, I prosecute and defend them. And when I was at the CPS, I was responsible for reviewing the decisions the CPS made as to whether to take them over or not. And I have to say, if you wanted to design a system from scratch, I would probably not have a private prosecution system and I would fund the prosecutors better. I think 
paraphrasing it grossly probably, but I think the sort of current standard in the Court of Appeal is that it's perfectly fine for a private prosecutor to have a even predominantly private motive for bringing the prosecution, but there has to be some indication that there is also a public service motive. Is that a test that needs to be tweaked or is there a more fundamental reform that is needed? Miranda? Well, certainly in relation to everyone around this table has either prosecuted or defended a private prosecution. And we've seen the range of what we consider to be those with merit. And clearly Richard has views on on one which doesn't have merit. From, from me personally, I see it as being such a unique feature of the English common law that I'm keen to keep it. It's a creative mechanism for defence lawyers to consider in the right case, in the right circumstances. Certainly at, at Cobra and Kim, we've recently been doing some research as to the availability of private prosecutions or the like in other jurisdictions, and it's extremely limited. We are very, very unique here. So having that scope and freedom to conduct private prosecution comes with its advantages and disadvantages. But taking your point, Robin, I think we either need to, as a profession, we need to police ourselves. We know that there is, I think, the code for private prosecutors that was brought into place voluntarily by the profession a few years ago. And I think that absolutely is is a very good step in the right direction. And as a profession, if we decide that we want to continue to do this, then we need to be doing it in a professional and ethical manner. So, so that is a safeguard. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the court of appeal in, in in Zynga considered exactly your point and would agree with you, which places an extra burden on counsel and solicitors who are prosecuting to perform the role of minister of justice. An old-fashioned and pompous phrase, as Richard Buxton noted in his article, but still valid. But I would favour, like you, keeping it, but with some form of break upon excessive misuse, usually in the context of commercial litigation as a lever to advantage one party over the other to achieve financial settlement. I think that it should survive, probably, but only subject to some form of policing, whether it is by the CPS or by somebody else. Well, it's not an independent policing, but certainly one of the ideas that my firm has been discussing is the notion of having a firm of solicitors acting for the client and then instructing a different firm of solicitors to conduct a private prosecution. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that is entirely, entirely right, if I may say so, uh, entirely right. And it's what I have done in, in the two instances where I've advised there should be a private, where there could be a private prosecution, legitimately brought. And that's exactly what's happened in each instance in order to provide that, that separation. What would you say then to the point that Nick made, that there is an access to justice aspect to the private prosecution being, being retained? if you effectively institute an obligation to hire not only one set of lawyers, but two sets of lawyers in order to, um, it's difficult. Order to make this happen. I, I acknowledge that. Well, I, when I was at the CPS reviewing all of the private prosecution decisions that came through where the CPS was invited um, by one of the parties or the court to intervene, I'd say, and this is going back about four or five years, two thirds of them were litigants in person bringing cases and about a third were the large prosecutions that uh, sound like they're taking up too much time at, at Southwark. 
So the litigants in person obviously were conducting their cases with some difficulty if they were complex and on a shoestring. So that's not, it's some answer to the access to justice, but it's not the complete answer. So, but I think it's just worth noting that the majority of private prosecutions are not these blockbuster fraud cases, but they certainly get the headlines. Yeah, I think that one factor to consider is that if you're looking at the access to justice point, where you have uh, an impecunious litigant seeking to bring a private prosecution on a shoestring, as Nick says, there's a very good argument there for saying, let the CPS look at it, because if it has validity, it is part, I would have thought, of the CPS's duty if it is something that is appropriate to be brought. It passes the evidential test and then passes the public interest test and therefore gets a tick to take it over and to help the private individual rather than anything else. And I don't have any difficulty with that, which is why I, to repeat, would retain the right to do it, at least to institute it. But I just think it's got to be subject to a much tighter safeguard because we all around this table know of examples, and I have lived through one recently, I'm living through one at the moment, which is still going on, where the system has been abused. And weaponizing the criminal justice system in that fashion is simply not appropriate. I entirely agree. And I mean, just actually picking up on something you said, Robin, about the recent case law, uh, focusing on the public interest in bringing a public prosecution. I think it's a case of Asif, where yes. that's dealt with uh, probably um, in most detail. I found that very interesting because, of course, CPS under the code have to apply a public interest test. There's no requirement on a private prosecutor to do so. They just have to be satisfied that there's sufficient evidence. They probably don't even need to be satisfied of that. But, of course, then they're going to fail at an early stage if it doesn't pass that test. So the Court of Appeal seems to be plugging that gap to me by saying, well, we're not just going to focus on collateral and improper motives. We're going to include within that a public interest element because the private prosecutor doesn't need to make that assessment and the CPS would. So in the case which the CPS hasn't been asked to look at, we, the court, will also consider the public interest under the guise of collateral motive. I quite agree with that. And, and, and ASIF is, is, of course, the most recent authoritative decision in the President of the Queen's Bench Division and does precisely what you say. It's very useful guidance. I think this it leads us on to a particular issue that I wanted to look at in relation to the independence in prosecutions. And it's a preliminary but essential step, namely the decision whether to open a criminal investigation in the first place, because obviously without an investigation, there will be no case ever brought before the court. And the Crown Prosecution Service, which conducts the vast majority of prosecutions in this country, they have no power to direct the opening of a criminal prosecution. It's for the police uh, to decide whether one should be opened and so whether an issue might ever cross the desk of a prosecutor. And when it comes to the police, just recalling their institutional position, under the Police Reform and Social Responsibility Act 2011, chief constables, so that's the heads of police of all the police authorities outside of, of London, are appointed by elected police and crime commissioners who may suspend uh, and or cause them to resign and retire. When it comes to the commissioner of the Met, she still was appointed by government following consultation with the mayor of London and serves at Her Majesty's pleasure. And as we have seen very in stock terms very recently, she is accountable to the mayor of London who can effectively apply political pressure for, um, for him or her to resign. Nick, 
in this system where the police are responsible for effectively giving you the cases that you then decide whether they should be pursued in court. Have you seen political pressure actually playing a role in decisions at the level of whether something should be investigated? I suppose the flip side of that question is, do you think there's a risk that there is a perception that such pressure is brought to bear? There's definitely a perception that the police are political animals, certainly the Met, who will get involved in the most complex and sensitive cases are perceived to factor in political considerations into whether they choose to investigate, who they choose to investigate, and ultimately whether they're going to refer a case to the police. Now, I've never seen firsthand such influence at play. What I have seen, again, with the Metropolitan Police, is an oversensitivity to reputational impact of their decisions and applying what's colloquially known as the Daily Mail test. How's it going to look? And that seems to me to be an unhealthy, perhaps I'm overemphasizing it just because I've seen it a few times, but an unhealthy way to approach their task. Now, of course, when you're talking about 99% of policing, volume crime, burglaries, rapes, murders, offenses of dishonesty, etc., no such considerations apply. There are political considerations there in terms of what the police are prioritizing, where they apply their resources, but nobody's going to find that objectionable, or at least not for the reasons that we're discussing because it's not improper, they're just policy decisions. However, in very high-profile cases, I have seen the police very concerned about the fallout from their decisions, as opposed to focusing solely on the evidence and the public interest and the reasonable lines of inquiry and seeing where they lead. And I think that infects the senior levels of the police and not the junior levels. And it's unwelcome, but I think it's inevitable. The alternative model then from a public perspective is the SFO, which is free to choose its own investigations. Miranda, do you think that political pressure actually plays a role in decisions to investigate? And again, the same flip side question, do you think there is a perception that that may be the case? I wouldn't call it political pressure. Obviously, the director and the SFO work to a statement of principle, and we have a remit of the types of cases that we choose to take on and we choose to take on in principle the most serious instances of complex fraud so it will cut out 99% of matters not everything can be prosecuted and not everything will be prosecuted however we take into account what is happening in the world and what is happening in the country we take into account the work being conducted by other agencies such as the NCA, the FCA, HMRC, to essentially make sure that each agency has a has a particular specialism. And all of that is within the public domain. All of the SFO's forecasts as to which areas they want to focus on, that is all within the public domain. And that will ebb and flow depending on what are the core issues in society at the time. And so just So that we're clear, does that mean that effectively the issues that are prominent in public debate at any given time will have an influence as to which types of cases the SFO prioritizes? I think that would be necessarily so, because if there, for instance, in relation to cyber fraud, etc., that is affecting many hundreds and thousands of, of people within the UK, it's within the public interest, it is something that is a priority. And I don't think that could be considered as 
political interference per se is just the reality of, of what is important, given we only have a limited number of matters that the SFO can take on. I have to say that I think it's entirely right that the SFO and the CPS are alert to and responsive to the issues of the day. One of the things that the general public, whether Daily Mail readers or otherwise, I think sometimes struggle with is when they read that a very large sum of money has been spent investigating something that is antique, where perhaps the corporate entity, everyone's gone, it's totally different, it's been taken over twice, the world has moved on, and there's another financial cycle in play. But I think that being current, being nimble, being attuned to the issues of the time is entirely what a prosecutor ought to do, hence the public interest test. Now, Richard, you have very recent experience of an FCA prosecution. Again, that's sort of a, an illustration of what is, I think, comparatively speaking, a very fragmented landscape in, 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 pro- in prosecutions in this country. The FCA, again, has a very particular remit, which is focused on regulatory oversight, and they have a sort of add-on competence to bring criminal prosecutions in the most serious cases. Do you think regulatory oversight is compatible with prosecutorial independence? It's an age-old conundrum, isn't it, where you have the person that sets the rules as the agency that decides whether the rules have been broken, and if they have, how badly, and then if they think it's really badly, brings a prosecution for the breach of its own rules, thereby creating some intellectual circularity. I don't think it's ideal, but I don't think there is any better way of having a specialist prosecutor. Not Take the health and safety executive as an example away from my, my recent case. I've dealt with a lot over the years in the context of corporate manslaughter and so forth. There, they again are the rule setters, they are the regulators, they are the investigators, they are the specialists, and they have the power to prosecute. And any attempt that there has been made over the years to challenge certainly the health and safety executives' independence has not succeeded, as far as I know, other than maybe on the odd individual case basis, but even that I'm not aware of. And I think whilst I could uh, fill quite a long podcast talking about the shortcomings of aspects of specialist agency investigations and therefore prosecutions, creating a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. I think to go further now would be outside the scope of the question you just asked me. I think it's worth reflecting a little bit over the, the fact that it is a unique feature of the English prosecutorial landscape that there isn't a single independent institution from the constitutional perspective with responsibility to decide whether or not a criminal investigation should be begun. Do we think that's a problem? Nick? I don't, although I have no direct experience of alternative systems. It seems to me it's a a product of our common law and adversarial system that you have parties with functions and roles and responsibilities independent of each other that work together. And I mean, to give you an example of where the friction can arise, when I was at the CPS, the police were investigating an extremely high profile case that got a lot of media attention. Mm. And we'd been asked to advise on it in the early investigative stage, which is perfectly appropriate. um, But ultimately, the decisions on whether to charge is going to be for the police. And they'd reached the position and we had advised that it didn't look like they were ever going to have enough evidence. But they knew that if they dropped it, 
they were going to fail the daily mail test, uh, or at least they were worried that they would. And so they asked us, can we just bend the rules and you advise that we should drop this case, even though we don't think it passes the evidential test? And of course, the police have to satisfy themselves that there's sufficient evidence before they can refer to the CPS. And they must have come back to us about five or six times to say, we need you to make the decision because we're too scared, effectively. And CPS said no, because that's not the constitutional arrangement. And eventually the police stiffened their spines and made the decision. Now, you know, if there'd been a third party involved that could have made the decision for them, then it would have protected the police maybe, but they would have lost their, they wouldn't have done their jobs properly in that situation because they would have run off to that third party and asked for permission to drop the case before following all reasonable lines of inquiry and, and making ultimately an independent decision. So that's an example of where there can be friction and tension, but I think the system ultimately worked. This raises and focuses on the issue of the very decision to prosecute. So we have an investigation and then a decision whether to bring charges. Miranda, the the other system that we have is obviously that of the SFO, where you decide whether to investigate, you conduct the investigation, then you also decide whether to bring charges. Some might refer to that as effectively the SFO correcting their own homework. And Richard has, has mentioned aspects of that within within regulatory authorities as well. Do you think that's a fair description of what the SFO is doing when they decide whether to bring charges following an investigation? Well, I don't think I ever had my own homework corrected because my homework was always perfect. (laughs) I think with the SFO, the difficulty is that with such large cases, it just wouldn't work in the same way that the police and CPS works because if we had a scenario where we were to allow the police to embark upon very large scale, very time consuming cases and only going to the CPS at the very end, or even at at a different stage to ask for a charging decision, then there would be some quite significant issues. And and this is before my time, but I think that's entirely the reason why the Roskill report was needed in order to address those delays, right? Mm. And hence the decision to form an organization where investigators and and lawyers could work together at an early stage to fix any problems and then to prosecute those cases. Now, in my experience, if you have a good prosecutor, if you have a good case controller, then the review processes ought to kick in and we should be able to correct any mistakes along the way. And indeed, we also instruct independent counsel whose job it is to provide us with objective feedback from an early stage up until charging decision. So if there's any suggestion that there's tunnel vision, I guess, on the part of certain prosecutors, then I think that's just tunnel vision. It's not an issue of independence or or lack thereof. That's a question that I'm going to direct straight to you, Richard. I mean, counsel obviously brought in, when I say counsel, I mean barristers yeah. often brought in to advise at the charging stage whether, you know, whether there's sufficient evidence and whether, and whether, and whether the public interest has been met. It's obviously a fairly unique feature, again, from an international perspective that we have an independent profession yeah. of that kind. Do you think that barristers bring a sufficient layer of independence and wait to correct for any sort of institutional tunnel vision that there may have been up to that point? Okay, well, no, I don't. Uh, For this reason that uh, we are, oh, and this is just me, uh, (laughs) over the years been told, 
your job is to decide whether there is uh, sufficient evidence under the first limb test of the test to prosecute, and you just leave the public interest to us. Now, I've been told that in terms twice by the SFO and once by the director. And although I haven't prosecuted for a number of years now, I don't suppose that's changed. And in a sense, it's quite right because they are the bodies that are charged with determining what is in the public interest. It shouldn't be up to some freelancing barrister to decide that question. But therefore, the answer to your question has to be no, because it's it's only yes to the first half, and it's unlikely to be dispositive of the decision-making unless you say there isn't enough evidence. But can I just go back to something Miranda was saying in answer to your prior question, which is I don't think that the problem is having one test but differently applied by different organizations. I think it's a question of resource. I do not join the clarion calls of criticism of the SFO, for example. I don't. Uh, And I think that they have, as you observed earlier on, always been singled out for abolition since they were first set up under statute following the Roskill report, as, as Miranda referenced earlier on. I don't think they've ever been properly resourced. And I think it is counterintuitive as the world has has evolved dramatically since the SFO's set up to keep separate and siloed prosecuting powers in the Financial Conduct Authority, extremely well resourced by the financial services sector. The SFO charged with this huge remit, but not so well resourced, but having people of very high quality who do their very, very best under almost insuperable problems, it seems to me, from having been on the inside and on the outside looking in, in two or three cases at the moment. And I think that the the allegation of resources is unbalanced. I also think there is little or no valid argument for keeping separate the prosecutorial function of the Financial Conduct Authority qua regulator and the serious fraud office as prosecutor. And I think that if you were to increase the resource, I don't just mean money, but technical, personal, and professional resource, the SFO, by removing from the FCA, for example, its prosecutorial role, and thereby broadening the remit of whatever new set of initials you want to use, doesn't really matter, the SFFCAAO (laughs) or something, it would not be just a rearrangement of the chairs on the decks of the Titanic as it steamed on towards the iceberg. It would introduce an equality of arms to some extent, which at the moment I think is unbalanced. And I think it is so easy to point the finger at the CPS when a case goes wrong. Take an issue that is highly sensitive at the moment of, of, of rape. And the statistics are appalling for the low level of prosecution. Everyone would agree with that. Well, Why? Take fraud, you look at Tesco or Barclays or any of the other cases that have, inverted commas, failed. Is that because of individual failings by people because they're not good enough? I don't think it usually is. I think it's more a question of a lack of resource and sometimes some say because the way the law is tilted. But I just think the one's got to be realistic about it. And I don't think we are at the moment. Which ties us in nicely with when we're looking at what sort of reform we may or may not need. If you look at the recommendations coming out of, for instance, Council of Europe bodies, etc., 
they very much link prosecutorial independence with an obligation to provide prosecutors with adequate resources. Looking at reforms more generally, I think it's perhaps important to put this in, a, in, a, in an international context. This is what I wanted to sort of end with and discussing what reforms might be conceivable. And I think we have, in, particularly in, in the context of private prosecutions, which actually there's very much a common law tradition, and the, again, the fragmented landscape of prosecutorial practice that we have in this jurisdiction is a result of a, of a very particular history. But I think before it suggested that providing sort of constitutional independence for prosecuting authorities, that somehow anathema to a common law tradition, it's worth reminding ourselves of, for instance, Ireland, where the director of public prosecutions enjoys much stronger institutional independence than his English equivalent. In many self-governing British overseas territories, the director of public prosecution enjoys constitutional independence under the Westminster-backed local constitutions. And again, moving away from the common law world, but internationally, if we look at the trend of when new prosecuting bodies are set up, looking at, for instance, the prosecutor's office for the International Criminal Court, or more recently, the European Public Prosecutor's Office, there's definitely a trend in the direction of providing for strong institutional independence guarantees, which I think are, it's fair to say, are stronger, at least on paper, than they are here. So um, what would you say, for instance, to the idea of including prosecutors as another chapter within the uh, the Constitutional Reform Act, effectively providing a, a statutory basis for, for independence? Would that change something? Perhaps, Nick, you can start. I mean, I'm all in favour of making prosecutors as independent as well resourced as possible. And how you do that as a matter of, sort of law and, and process is sort of neutral on on that, uh, uh, provided you achieve the outcome. I mean, I think the question would be, well, what, where do we perceive a lack of independence currently? Is it just on paper or is it in practice? And if it is in practice, what's the mischief of that? And, you know, there is an argument that the police or the prosecutors here may be shy away from some difficult cases. And I think part of that is there's a sort of British tradition of just not wanting to make a fuss and if something looks a bit too difficult or complicated and nobody's screaming out for an investigation, then, then maybe the police will avoid it. Whereas a strong independent prosecutor with the power to commence an investigation would not have that squeamishness. And you may have, you know, one particularly uh, interested prosecutor, properly supervised, who, who decides that, yes, this does need looking into, even though the police have declined. And I think provided there were proper controls around prosecutor-commenced investigations, and obviously I know they exist within the SFO, then that would be a reform worth making. What you don't want, in my view, is giving too much power to prosecutors, because this may be a little bit of a crude caricature, but if you look at the US federal system, assistant US attorneys with the powers to empanel a grand jury, issue subpoenas, indict a ham sandwich, as the old saying goes, hold out the prospects of terrifyingly long sentences, which could be reduced down provided the person cooperates and pleads guilty, and you end up with an administrative system of justice, which is ruled by prosecutorial carrot and stick, rather than proper pursuit of following the evidence in the public interest. So I don't want the prosecutors to have too much power, but maybe a little bit more would be helpful. Looking particularly at the issues that arise in the political sphere, so we have had issues with, for instance, members of parliament having, we call it side gigs, 
on behalf of companies with interests in public procurement. We have had allegations of corruption in COVID um, and COVID-related procurement practice over the past two years. These are issues which I think from the outside, for instance, from a French perspective, uh, one would expect prosecutors to be all over like a rash. And in this country, uh, we have seen very little by way of investigations, let alone prosecutions in those types of cases. And of course, without expressing any, any particular view as to the merits of any, any of the cases that have, that have reached the public domain, do we think the absence of investigations and prosecutions in that type of case is due to the weak standing of prosecutors in this jurisdiction compared to prosecutors in other jurisdictions? Richard? I think it's more a function of time. I don't know why, but I get the impression that everything moves incredibly slowly here. And so the COVID cases won't actually be being investigated, if they're investigated at all, for another two or three years. We have a much less agile and immediate response. Maybe that's a good thing. So we have more reflection, more mature chance to consider whether something is truly criminal in a societal sense or not, rather than rushing in. I always lost in admiration, if that's the right word, for the American system of their ability to get the Madoff case, for example, done and dusted in an afternoon or what it felt like, as opposed to it taking seven or eight years. I don't think it's necessarily what the, the, the system you just outlined, the situation you just outlined is not necessarily indicative of there being some systemic failure. I think it's just how we are. If I can turn to maybe your reference to international comparisons, but I'll deal briefly with the US point. I was reading a statistic saying something like 94 or 95% of federal criminal cases in the US are settled by way of a plea, which that just cannot be right. And, and the notion that uh, judges and prosecutors can be elected by popular vote is very, very frightening to us in England. So what's the alternative? Certainly, certainly not that. But in terms of the question of independence, and I've been thinking very carefully about what everyone is saying, is is more independence necessarily a good thing, potentially? However, safeguards and oversight is also really important. To take the very unfortunate SFO example with the Attorney General Review, this is an example of the oversight feature kicking in to look at the decisions of the SFO and the director. So that is an instance where it would appear that the Attorney General has serious concerns about the conduct of the organization in relation to this case. So so that's a clear example as to when oversight is, is needed. I'm currently defending a case in the Seychelles where there is an independent anti-corruption commission which operates of its own accord. It has its own act with powers to arrest, to seize property, to investigate serious fraud offences and corruption offences. And in effect, it's like a mini SFO. And that organisation purports to operate completely independently of the Attorney General, and it can bring, bring its own prosecution. So in theory, that is, that organization was instituted in order to bring greater prosecutorial independence to a small African nation. Now, 
that all sounds great. And they were boosted up in, in their rankings in, I think, Transparency International's global review of, of various countries. But now that I'm defending a case there, if you look at it closely, there isn't sufficient oversight, in my view, obviously slightly biased as, as being the defense lawyer. Now, Thankfully, we have that oversight in this country, and but in less developed nations, that doesn't exist. So I don't think we should ever, you know, lose sight of that. I had just one other point about why there aren't as many investigations in this jurisdiction into public misconduct, whether it's you know PPE contracts or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is we don't have the right offences because. The threshold for misconduct in public office is extremely high. Uh, Police and prosecutors know that. Uh, Very difficult to prove. And you will open and probably have to run a very long and expensive investigation, which will ultimately lead nowhere. And other than that, you're reliant on sort of fraud and and bribery type offences, which often in these cases are going to be made out. Somebody's done something wrong, potentially breached their duties to the public purse or their professional duties, but it may not be dishonest in a way that would found such an offence. So there's an argument, and I know the Law Commission have looked at this, for something in the middle that would allow proper investigation by the police and, and then prosecution of public misconduct, which doesn't require meeting the extreme high threshold for misconduct in public office. I'd just like to add one thing, that I, I do wonder whether the break on judicial review of decisions both to prosecute and not to prosecute should be let off a bit. I mean, at the moment, essentially, a prosecutorial decision, one way or the other, is entirely free of review. I sat opposite a regulator, I shan't say which, not from the CPS or from the SFO, a month ago, and said, well, we might review your decision, to which he shrugged, (laughs) uh, as if to indicate, we can do what you like, mate, but it's not going to get you anywhere. And we both knew that to be true. And I think the honouring of the independence of the prosecutorial decision-making process by the judiciary, which is of long-standing and uh, great veneration, may be overdue a review. One very quick point on that. This could obviously all be edited out because I'm probably speaking too much. But um, when I was at the CPS, certainly... There were some challenges, but they were few and far between the ones that succeeded. That's true. But I, I got the feeling from some of the judgments that the judges were concerned that CPS resources would be diverted into defending judicial reviews and yeah. their decisions, which was not a good use of public money. And that's the reason they kept the bar so high. Yeah. Well, that's undoubtedly correct. Whether well, it's a good reason. <laughs> yes, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> so there you have it. A fascinating discussion between very experienced practitioners, which I hope has given you some food for thought. Once again, I'm very grateful to Nick Vamos of Peters and Peters, Miranda Ching of Cobra and Kim, and Richard Lissa, QC of Fountain Court Chambers, for joining me, and I hope our listeners enjoyed the episode as much as we did. I hope you will join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court Podcast. Podcast.